Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. You know, today I'm excited. And I'll tell you why, guys. Please tell us why. Because when Allison brought this idea for a topic up, I had never even heard of it before. And so the chance to learn about a brand new piece of Fortiana really made my Tuesday afternoon. I don't know about you guys, but when I can learn about something really weird, I get really excited. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It was news to me, too. Yeah. So, Allison, first of all, before we get there, we want to make sure we invite everybody out. If you are going to be in Alton, Illinois this weekend, just right outside of St. Louis, we are going to be at the Haunted America Convention. What's the website again? It's like ghostconference.net. Yeah, ghostconference.net is where you find. So if you're anywhere in the Midwest, we recommend meeting us at Haunted America this weekend. You can meet me. You can meet Wendy Lynn. You can meet Allison from Milwaukee Ghost. Uh, Lisa from Madison Ghost Walks is going to be down there with us too. And we are going to have a party table. Sunspot, Wendy and I, we're going to be performing live music. So excited. The live paranormal music we write for every podcast. We are going to be playing that for you on Friday night. And, you know, we'll, and we'll be causing trouble throughout the convention. Oh, as, as we do. <laughs> and I'm glad to hear that, guys, that you're ready to cause some trouble. Because you sound like you've been under the weather. <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, recovering. It, it, it was a wild weekend. Yes. There was a lot going on this weekend with the Between the Waves Music Festival in Madison. Mm-hmm. And I played in a wedding pr- oh, yeah. uh, reception, had a Father's Day event, and then we went to the Madison Area Music Awards. Sunday night. Sunday night, so... Apparently, throughout all of that, uh, I picked something up along the way. And, and Wendy was robbed for Drummer of the Year at the Madison Area <laughs> Music Awards. I, you know, and she won a couple years ago, and it was a great day for Madison Music. And this year, uh, I didn't get it. Something happened. Somebody must have cheated because Wendy is the Drummer of the <laughs> Year every year. Absolutely. Thanks, Mike. Well, I do want to thank everybody who voted for me because I really appreciate that. And so does the Madison uh, community because your voting means that you donated money to kids who don't have instruments. Yes. So you might help the, the future of rock and roll get off to a good start. So keep, keep thank it, you. Keeping it alive. Yeah, and you guys are soldiering on. And so I brought you a topic that I think you'll enjoy. And uh, I know you guys have talked about missing planes before, but I don't know if you talked about this one. And Absolutely. No, we haven't talked about this yeah. before. That's it's, why I made it exciting. We talked about MH370, obviously, a thousand times. Right. That was the one. Still disappeared. Nobody knows what happened to it. 300 souls missing, gone forever. And, and this is Lake Michigan's uh, 370. This is Lake Michigan's lost plane. Yeah, right in our neighborhood here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so the, dead, a lot the of deadly people, shores of Lake Michigan. I know. Well, uh, yeah, we'll talk about that because you know some people think that there's a Lake Michigan Triangle, just like there's a Bermuda Triangle. Now, I don't uh, know if that would be the case, or it was just made up in both cases to sell books. But there are weird disappearances <laughs> that happen, and we're going to talk about one of them today. Well, I'm excited because if there is a Lake Michigan Triangle, my in-laws live in Manitowoc. So then if I have to go up to Manitowoc, now it gives me something to do yes. when I go up there is look for shipwrecks and the planes crashes and stuff like that. So 
uh, I think I have a reason now to go visit the Lake Michigan Triangle. Yeah, absolutely. After the summer, you know, maybe we will know a little bit more. Um, so the flight that we're talking about is uh, Northwest Orient flight and uh, the number is 2501. So I'm just going to call it 2501 or NW2501. I think that that might be the easiest. It disappeared. And we don't really use the term Orient anymore anyway. No. Well, but <laughs> like, you know, if like, you're, it was an Oriental flight. If you're God, looking, uh, if you're looking it up, uh, you might want to put that in Northwest Orient Airlines flight 2501. Or I've seen uh, us for the Google. Yeah, I've seen NWA twenty five hundred one. But you know, if you're googling uh, while while you are listening or afterward, you might want to put that in. So it went down. Does and- anybody realize that the NWO that's the New World Order? No, like, has, I don't think we did. About that? No, <laughs> that this might be something. Like, let's just. I'm just saying, just throwing it out there right yeah. away. George Bush, a New World Order. Put that in your mind as we get into it. Okay, I think you're cracked, but let's move on. All right, June 23rd, 1950 is when we lost this plane over Lake Michigan. And uh, it was actually um, headed from New York City. And it was going to make a stopover in Minneapolis and then go on to Seattle. And... uh, then all of a sudden it just disappeared. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, some of the details of what happened because the devil's in the details. And this time, literally the devil might be in the details. Well, we don't know. I mean, the the cause of the crash was never determined. And the actual body of the plane, the fuselage, has never been located. And I was mentioning about maybe after this summer, we'll know some more because uh, there is a group of people that have been searching for this missing plane for well over a decade. And you might be familiar with at least one of them. So I'll, I'll get into that in just a second. So on, on June 23rd, 1950, Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 2501 disappeared in a flash. And the plane has never been found. And what happened still remains a mystery. 58 people and the aircraft are still missing. And no official explanation for the crash has ever been provided. And not that many people even know about it. Like you guys didn't know about it at all. So right. when uh, and I love plane crashes. Yeah. And well, well, I don't know about that, but it crashed over Lake Michigan. And for a while, they actually uh, thought that it had gone down off Milwaukee because that was the last radio contact uh, was over Milwaukee. And debris was actually found nearby um, off of Milwaukee um, on Lake Michigan. And so they thought that was the crash zone. Did they say what kind of debris? Was it like a, was it a piece of the wing or was it a piece of the engine? Was it yeah. somebody's arm? Well, that's the thing. I mean, nothing that big has ever been recovered in any of the search areas. Um, only little fragments of the plane and of human remains have been found. Uh, so off of Milwaukee, I, I think uh, it was mainly because uh, what I've read in other reports is like a really big oil slick that they thought had come from uh, the crashing plane. But then more debris and fragments of bodies were actually found off South Haven, Michigan. But 
Now, let me be clear. No complete bodies or wreckage have ever been found. There were some parts of blankets and suitcases that washed up and unfortunately, uh, also human remains. But like, did they say it was specifically, was it like teeth? Was well, it like a finger? Like was it a somebody's child's like spleen? Well, let me explain. Oh, God, a so spleen. They, they, oh. they, they talked about different parts, including like a child's heart floated up. Uh, and, oh, oh, man. Yeah. So these things were collected and they did wash up as well on the beaches of Michigan. And so there's one mass grave in St. Joseph, Michigan, and one in South Haven. But, uh, you know, so, so, so much was unknown about this that in the, um, the victims' families didn't, some of them didn't even know about these mass graves. All right. So this happened, like I said, 1950. You know, it's like 70 years ago almost. So, uh, yeah, this week. Yeah. So, yeah. And this is the anniversary. That's why we're, we're talking about it because the anniversary is coming up. So now, since 2004, there has been a search team looking for it. So the search team is actually financed by the best selling writer of the Dirk Pitt adventure series, Clive Cussler. So you guys might remember the movie with uh, Matthew McConaughey and um, Steve Vaughn. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's his name? Steve Zahn. That's right, Steve Zahn. Steve Zahn. Sorry. Yeah, he's I, great. He's funny. I, he's awesome in Saving Silverman. I time. love Steve Zahn. So Steve Zahn, Matthew McConaughey, and Penelope Cruz were in the movie, and uh, so he bankrolls this search for NW twenty five oh one, and has done like almost every year since two thousand and four, and. So like this year, they're really excited because uh, they have a new person on the team. Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> no, but the, the team. <laughs> the reconnaissance continues. The, the reconnaissance. The, the team is headed by Valerie Van Heest, who is an author who wrote the book Fatal Crossing about the crash and is director of the Michigan Shipwreck Research Associates. Now, um, so she started this back in, in 2004 and is surprised to still be doing it. Now, they're really excited this year because uh, when they kick off the search, they have a new person on the team. His name is Greg Bush, and he studies the ocean. He's, he is somebody who has uh, studied shipwrecks on the ocean floor. He's an oceanographer, and he is volunteering his time. He created a, a specialized sonar sled to try to locate the the crash. They they have searched near South Haven, Michigan, previously, but but now they they think they have an even more targeted search area, and so they have this you know specialized uh, sonar to try to locate the wreckage, and you know scan uh you know, across Lake Michigan. And then if they find something, they have a three-person submersible to take take down and confirm their Ooh, find. Like James Cameron and Titanic. Right, absolutely. So now they have some more high-tech equipment. But when the you, heart of the ocean. Yeah, the heart of the ocean. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> when, when you think of Lake Michigan, though, you, you don't think it's that 
vast, but it really is. It really is like an inland sea, as many people call it. Yeah. But it's just extraordinary that they've been looking for this plane for over a decade. And I'm really hoping that they find it. Well, Allison, take a minute to set it yeah. up a little bit. Because the thing is, like, was there anything in particular? When we talk about the plane disappearing. So was this something where the plane takes off in New York and then just never shows up in Minneapolis? And they're like, well, that's nope. it. You know, they're like, they must have taken the wrong turn at Albuquerque. Like, how, like, was there anything in particular? Yeah. So, um, it was the worst naval disaster for the period. And, uh, yeah, let's talk about the details. So, it was westbound out of New York City's LaGuardia Airport. And they were trying to reach Seattle, Washington. Now, the last uh, radio communication was a request to fly lower to avoid other air traffic. But the request was denied. Uh, the captain defied the instructions. But that guy feels like a jerk. Yeah, the, the, the captain defied uh, the instructions, uh, but it was never Ooh. clear. <laughs> what other air traffic in the area the captain wanted to avoid. So, What was the name uh, of the captain? Uh, the captain was uh, Robert Lind. He was a third... Captain Robert yeah. Lind plays by his own rules. I said, I'm not going to be up here with that other air traffic. I'm outie. Yeah, so he uh, was... Uh, he was the bad boy of aviation. <laughs> it was shocking that he would go against that but what would make somebody go against so he that? saw something that yeah. the air traffic control did not see yeah possibly he thought he needed to avoid but they didn't think he did so um the civil aeronautics board said in their report that none of the radio communications from the flight including the last contained any mention of trouble but uh, at the same time the possibility of this accident um it seems remote that it could have been mechanical failure uh, because this was a, a pretty new plane. Uh, DC-4 had never had any trouble like this before and, you know, all of a sudden disappears. Now, there was... And Captain Lind was the kind of renegade that gets results. <laughs> yeah, well, so like... that, that's what you would think. So it was about 11.30 uh, p.m., uh, central time, and the plane was 3,500 feet above sea level, uh, above Battle Creek, Michigan. It was about 37 minutes from Milwaukee. And uh, now that's pretty low, though, when you think about that. Like, yeah, we've been to Battle Creek, you know, it's we, a real city. Yeah, we've been about we've visited Snap, Crackle, and Pop, <laughs> and Tony, <laughs> and Tony the Tiger. That's where Battle Creek, Michigan is where Kellogg's is from, everybody. So, if you had cornflakes this morning. That's where your corns were flaked. Great. I did not know that. That's fascinating, Mike. <laughs> what are you talking about, Al? So we went, to, we went to Battle Creek, Michigan together as kids and visited Uh-oh. the whole Kellogg's and General Mills thing. Okay. Well, I must have just, you know, blocked it but, out. It's Well, uh, it was tra- like the Mandela traumatic. effect with the Fruit Loops. She didn't remember the Fruit Loops. I, yeah. yeah you, I thought it was flu- Fruit Loop Guru. That's right. I, you, it's, it's, it's I'm all turned around. Block. It's some kind of screen memory to, you know, protect me from the real terror. Right. For what happened was you were ambushed by Toucan Sam. Oh, is that what happened? It ruined me as a child, and so you had to think other things. But but the thing is, you say 3,500 feet over Battle Creek, Michigan. That doesn't seem very high at all. Yeah, and then it vanished from radar screens after requesting a descent to 2,500 feet. Okay, so that's like, what is that, like three or four stories? Yeah. I I guess it's not three or four stories. That's an exaggeration. So why? 2,500 feet. A widespread 
search was launched using sonar, dragging the bottom of Lake Michigan with trawlers, but uh, they they couldn't really find uh, the substance of the plane. They they just had like wow, like I said, upholstery, blankets, suitcases, a child's heart, yeah, uh, yeah, baby human, heart, human Ugh. body fragments. Uh, they were floating on the surface, but then the, the, when the divers went down below, they're like, oh, there's all this debris on the surface. We should be able to find the wreckage below. They were never able to find it. And um, it was the deadliest uh, aviation disaster in the U.S. at that time. So what to think about it? Well, I didn't know. I, I thought it was weird that it had never been found. Well, there's a lot of stuff, though. There's planes that disappear. There's, I mean, yeah. there's air crashes. And, you know, really, what happened this year was that the person had the, remember, we had one fatality in an airplane this year. And that, that I mean, that sounds horrific. She was like sucked out the window. Remember that story in Southwest? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. But trying terrible. to forget about it. But you save a lot of money with those flights. But that's, <laughs> anyway. But I want to say, it's like, nobody's died in 10 years yeah. you know, on a U.S. domestic flight. So this, we're talking 70 years oh, ago. Oh, that's great. Things are just very different. Right. Absolutely. And and I want to share that, you know, so I heard about the plane and then I was, you know, just looking through newspaper articles and I saw this this article from the Milwaukee Sentinel back uh, from September 1st, 1954. And this is what got me thinking that, well, maybe there's, there's something unusual to it. It's by uh, an entertainment reporter named uh, Buck Herzog. And it's a sweet name. He, he's saying he's talking about uh, flying saucers being added again. He says, yep, things have been jumping again in the wild blue yonder. A woman called the other day to inquire if our files show August and September to be the months for flying saucers to make their appearance. She said she was sure she saw one of these UFOs winging its eerie way over the west tip of Hales Corners, which isn't far from where we are or where I am anyway. Whoa, yeah. 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 Um, and from our friend Jerry Fairbanks, who uh, was a uh, quite a producer of uh, short films at the time, uh, comes the report that he's going right along with the production of the first full-length documentary film on flying saucers, taken from government files. And the book Wait, by Jerry Fairbanks. Okay, well, um, he did a whole array of popular science videos, and then all of a sudden he got interested in ufos and this comes out that he's going to make this first full-length documentary and he's gonna take information from government files and from the book by uh, major donald e kehoe called flying saucers from outer space and if you know kehoe he was really active in uh ufology in the early days in the 1950s and 60s and that's funny because as, as when i was mentioning don kehoe to wendy earlier she's like his name's donald kehoe mm-hmm. like don kehoe oh yeah well i didn't make that connection before, i'm just saying but... don kehoe tilting at windmills yeah i'm sure he fought like that in his career <laughs> Uh, with with how weird it got for him. So Jerry, it says Jerry Fairbanks calls attention to page 18 in the book detailing the crash in Lake Michigan of a passenger plane on June 23rd, 1950, scheduled to land in Milwaukee. Now, I think that's inaccurate. I think they were uh, just going to pass over. The plane was last heard from flying over Benton Harbor, Michigan. No uh, last second radio call gave any clue 
to how the 58 on board the liner met their fate. Witnesses witnesses testified to seeing a prolonged flash in the in the sky like a ball of fire lasting too long to be lightning around um, an oil slick oddly shredded wreckage came to the surface bits of blankets sliced in strips similar fragments of clothing seat cushions and plywood but no bodies no large wreckage recovered according to the chapter in the book the civil aeronautics board made a thorough investigation of the accident but couldn't figure out the answer its official report stated that the cause of the accident was undetermined meanwhile a number of people swore the plane was hit by a saucer and commented there was something funny about the investigation but why enlighten you with further details the crash will be one of the highlights of fairbanks movie Project Flying Saucer with Milwaukee's uh, airport and personnel written into the script. Okay, uh, now uh, when I well, found that's like that's like a hometown win. I know, right? And when I found that, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so excited!" Right? And then so I went looking for where is this Project Flying Saucer. Well, unfortunately, um, it didn't really come about in the way that it was originally intended. So. Uh oh. Yeah. So Jerry I'm not sure. Still... You know, we've we talked. Well, maybe to, somebody um, stopped him. Yeah, we talked to Robert Graham <laughs> a lot about Hollywood and UFOs, and how contentious uh, producers' relationship uh, and filmmakers' relationships are with the government, and you know how they have to bend to get you know government information, for example. So I was really excited to to see all that because it had, you know, they were going to interview local people and this was 1954. Now, um, so then I lost, I, I couldn't find any information on it. So I just lost the trail. And then today I found that it does talk about a little bit about what happened to it. And I had noticed that he had all these films, including something called The, the Bamboo Saucer in 1968, which was a sci-fi, sci-fi film, mm. but its fiction is very different than the original documentary idea. But um, so he he was uh, Jerry Fairbanks. Well, the as, Bamboo Saucer sounds like something like you think aliens are going to fly around like a Gilligan's Island kind of. <laughs> like that's the, the Bamboo Saucer yeah. sounds like the profe- well, the professor well, made it on the island, trying to look organic. It, yeah, what trying it to fit in. What it, yeah, what Did it ended up being, why it's called the bamboo saucer is because it crashed in a communist China in the ah, film. Okay. And and the US and uh, Soviet forces are racing to find the wreckage and find out about it and reverse engineer it. So, but that's a long way from where it started. So, as I mentioned, Jerry Fairbanks was a producer and sometimes director of a variety of short subject films. Uh, in, including uh, films for popular science. And um, so there is mention of another 1954 trade article stated that Fairbanks was preparing his first theatrical motion picture venture entitled Project Saucer that was to be filmed in widescreen and color. But then uh, that went away. And in 1964, another article that's 10 years later stated that Fairbanks was moving production of his film, which he now renamed to Operation Blue Book, 
um, from a runaway production in Spain uh, to be filmed in the USA. So something didn't work out in Spain. And then, you know, he continued to persevere, but it got all changed around. And he had uh, a gentleman named Frank uh, Telford rewrite the screenplay. Took the Milwaukee all out of it. Yeah, Jerry, apparently. Right? Why, Jerry? And Why? The, truth, the truth out of it, too. So Fairbanks did contact the Office mm. of the United States Secretary of Defense about his screenplay. And in April 12, uh, 1966, the reply uh, came from them that uh, they had a quote negative reaction to Project Saucer and they recommend that the screenplay uh, delete reference to the CIA and um, delete reference to the U.S. Air Force and so they made all these edits to the script so I'm wondering how much of the government was involved with this thing you know from the beginning you know maybe he reached yeah, out really. to them before it and they're like, oh, no, you, you can't do a documentary. Do it as fiction. You know, just like today with, you know, what's going on with To the Stars and all their disclosures and then Tom DeLong, you know, and others come out with books. They're fiction, but there's some truth to them. But we can't tell you what is truth. So I, I have a feeling maybe some of that was going on during this movie production. Why would we think, though, that the government... So, so let's say this is just an accident. Something happened and the Aryan engine blew up. Right? It's the 1950s. Anything can happen in aviation. You know, we're in the day... There's like 58 people on the plane. Now there's like 250 people on planes that disappear. Right, right but well, they it think was it was time. to do with UFOs. They're trying to hide something, you know, the... Yeah. The pilot saw something in the sky. He called in to try to get the lower clearance and the air traffic control didn't see it on their radar. And yet yeah. there was still some kind of a collision. So what was it, Mike? But the reason it? that the government doesn't want us to talk about it isn't necessarily because it was a UFO. But it, whatever it was, whether it was UFO or government related. So let's say I take a guy like Jerry Fairbanks. Now, Jerry Fairbanks obviously is good with press releases because he's been releasing press releases the whole time, talking to popular science, doing this thing. And the government's thinking, okay, we want people to think it's a UFO. Why? Because they had some kind of project or whatever, like they had some missile in the sky, some Patriot missile system that obviously didn't work. So I like the idea that's a U- I don't like the idea of anything where 58 people die. No, of course. Yeah. Um, and like, and child's hearts float up in the, o- like in the, in the inland sea <sighs> by our home. No yeah. one likes this. No. But the idea that, you know, we talk about, Robbie Graham, we mentioned him, and a lot of the things in Robbie Graham's book, Silver Screen Saucers, aren't necessarily about the government covering things up that we would think are alien, but the government using aliens to to redirect our attention from something they're doing. Because that's something we're never going to be able to prove. That's something we're never going to be able to get. So if they they blame aliens for what happened to this New World Order flight uh, in 1950... But the other thing is that maybe they were thinking, well, a lot of time has gone by... The interest in this case is slowly starting to peter off, you know. Mm-hmm. Let's sure. not draw more attention back to something that, you know, could bring light well, to true. something we don't want. In Robbie's book, um, I recently interviewed him via Skype for a mutual UFO network meeting in uh, Illinois. And he was talking about, like, how government is... It's full of different people, right? And they have different approaches at different times. And early on, the approach was to deny or to 
deny assistance or to deny uh, information or technology. And now as it progresses, they've changed their tenor to a little bit more of, well, we want, you know, it's okay to, to say that they're aliens, but say it this way. So I think I think what you're talking about, Mike, is, is something of a newer occurrence. I mean, we'll have to get okay. Robbie back on to to clarify that. But um, from from my earlier interview with him a few weeks ago, I think that was his consensus. That uh, yeah, at first the approach was a little bit different than than it is today. Now um, let's go back to Kehoe and his book, uh, Flying Saucers from outer space so he was a first of all retired marine yes so let me finish that he was a a major um (laughs) in uh, the u.s marine corps and then he retired and then he wrote this book flying saucers from outer space and um he spoke with an air force captain whose name was jim riordan and uh, Jim had some interesting things to say. And let's uh, just say about Kehoe, too, that uh, he was a Marine Corps naval aviator in during his career before he retired. And then he retired as a major and founded NICAP, which is the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And then uh, he wrote this book, Flying Saucers from Outer Space, and it was uh, came out in 1953, and he does talk about NW2501. Now, here's the passage from the book. It's a like an interview be- between him and Captain Jim. So there have been some peculiar crashes the last few years. Take Northwest Airlines DC-4 that went into Lake Michigan. Riordan stopped as the waiter came up. While the man was putting down our orders, I thought back to the Northwest crash. It had been just before midnight, June 23, 1950. The DC-4, with 58 aboard, was flying over Benton Harbor, Michigan. It was a rough night with wind and rain lashing the coast. Suddenly, there was a prolonged flash in the sky. Witnesses later described it as a ball of fire lasting too long to be lightning. Whatever the answer, it was the end for the 58 aboard the airliner. Uh, no last-second radio call gave any clue as to how they had met their fate. The next day, a Coast Guard cutter crew found an oil slick offshore. For two days, Navy divers tried to probe the thick mud 150 feet down. Finally, they gave up, leaving the DC-4 and its dead entombed in the deep silt. Meanwhile, oddly shredded wreckage had come to the surface, bits of blankets sliced into strips, similar fragments of clothing, seat cushions, and plywood. But no bodies, no wreckage large enough to analyze were ever recovered. When we were alone. I told Riordan I had been thinking over the crash. I know people who swear the plane was hit by a saucer, he said. And there was a radio commentator, Frank Edwards. I know Frank, I said. I remember he dug into that case. Well, Edwards said there was something funny about the investigation. He thought the Civil Aeronautics Board should have kept on until they got an answer. I think myself, they could have tried harder, but it would have taken a lot of dough. They might have had to die for weeks. Did the CAB ever report on it, asked Riordan. They said they couldn't figure out the answer. What bothers me is the way the blankets and plywood were shredded, as if something had hit the ship with terrific force. Thing is, though, 
how would he know, like, with blankets shredded and stuff like that, something with terrific force? Like, when a plane gets goes down or whatever, like, isn't that terrific force? Like, Yeah, um, but this is a rarity to not find the fuselage. And yeah. so anyway, I thought it was interesting. I was also reading Jay Race's book from 1997, The W-Files, True Reports of Wisconsin's Unexplained Phenomena. And Ooh, I... I Came up, is awesome. Yeah. So I came upon this uh, where he talks about the case and uh, he gives a lot of the information that we previously talked about. And then he says, roughly an hour and a half later, after this plane went down suddenly, uh, two Whitefish Bay police officers looked out over Lake Michigan and saw a red light. They watched it for about 10 minutes. They were used to Whoa. night patrol, but they had never seen anything like it before. It was so odd, they called the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard Milwaukee Station sent a ship out into the lake. They did not see any strange lights, but they did find a U.S. Navy vessel. The Coast Guard captain asked the Navy vessel if they'd seen anything. No, they said. And then uh, he asked, uh, what were they doing out so late? Maneuvers was the only reply. And according to the June 25th, 1950 Chicago Tribune, the naval vessel had not seen a Northwest Flight 2501. As a matter of fact, no one has ever seen Northwest Flight 2501. It disappeared 37 minutes from Milwaukee. The Coast Guard didn't know that until the next morning. They launched a search at dawn. Eventually, even the Navy was called in, and they used secret sonar and sonar devices to look for the underwater wreckage. It was never found. Uh, no uh, bodies were found, just the fragments that we talked about. And uh, the flight would have passed directly over the Navy ship and its captain, who <laughs> would only answer maneuvers uh, as to what had happened. And it took a year for the civil aeronautics board to finally deliver its findings that there's not sufficient evidence upon which to make a determination of probable cause now so i thought oh that's weird you know some coast guard guys um you know see over lake michigan that there's these strange lights but i was really shocked because i uh, uncovered i was like well let's just see um, what was going on that night in the skies. And I was really shocked to find when I started looking that there weren't just those sightings over Whitefish Bay. People saw strange lights um, on both sides of Lake Michigan, on the Michigan side and on uh, the Wisconsin side. And not only now, that. Where did you find that? All over in newspapers.com and in books oh, well, uh, about the crash, uh, about, you know, what people reported seeing. But the thing that was most shocking to me is that there was so much activity that night. And I'm going to I'll tell you a, a little bit about those crashes. You know how in the other reports I was reading, it said about near near Lake Michigan, how the you know, this. Uh, light in the sky was seen um, where the plane had been and it was you know a longer lasting flash than lightning it just hung up there and so I was really shocked to see that not only did that happen 
here that people saw that. But people um, saw strange things in the sky all over that night. And let's see. I have one here from California. One um, over Mattoon, Illinois. Uh, let's see. Another one over Denton, Texas. Another one. Uh, let's see. Where that was Denton, Texas again. Um, another one over Oregon. All right. So, and the way that I started to, you know, see these reports is, okay, so I'm looking for newspaper articles on uh, NW2501. And so, like, what do I see? Um, all right. So here's one from the, the Hatesburg, uh, Mississippi newspaper, the Hatesburg American from Saturday, June 24th, 1950. And I was looking for the air crash and this huge headline says 58 die in air crash. But what's above it? What was it? Strange object flashes across Dixie skies. And it's about all over the South. People were seeing strange objects in the sky that night as well. So <laughs> I, I know that it's not definitive, but, you know, to have all these reports is really a startling thing. That's fascinating. Yeah. And so I just found so many from that night and uh, from the day before and days after that people were seeing things as well. And uh, here's another one, Galveston Daily, Celestial Experience explosions seen by hundreds in county so a strange sight starts phone bells ringing huge ball of fire reported for a thousand miles in the south all right so pretty strange right now (laughs) now here's here's another thing you know maybe it wasn't a ufo i mean ufo really just means unidentified flying object you know it's interesting that so many people saw these things another one was spotted in pennsylvania lewistown teacher joins flying saucer observers that was reported on the 24th um she saw the the sky giving off a a steely light she said um fireball zooms over a thousand miles of the gulf state area that's from el paso texas it sounds like the south really had a lot of yeah i mean the south had a lot of sightings that night right um but also it's interesting if the weather was different because we were talking about the weather that could have been you know sure donald keogh talks about in his book he talks about how the weather would have been in the north and so you would see less fireballs. You would see less things. Yeah, you would if, see fewer manifestations because because True. there was uh, there was a, a thunderstorm as well. You know, so that's why it would made people think lightning. Um, but again, you know, what if it was something else more extraordinary? Um, here's another one. This was one actually from Palm Beach Post that a flying saucer was seen in the afternoon of the 23rd. And uh, let's see. Well, it had to have time to get to Benton Harbor, whatever, to crash into yeah, the New right. World Order flight. And also seen over Nevada in the Lovelock area. I mean, the thing is, though, if we looked at UFO reports today, and let's say you take out the the like the, the Daily Mail or whatever in yeah. England, because it seems like they've got a paranormal story every day. <laughs> oh, right. Well, but, they, they want to sell papers. 
Sure, but if you looked at, I mean, but they still wanted to sell papers in June 24th, 1950. But if we're looking at the, the news in June 24th, 1950, I wonder if, if there would really be a statistically significant, statistically significant <laughs> number more yeah. of UFO sightings that would be in any other day. Because this is also the beginning of the UFO era. You know, yeah. this is also 1950 is the time when UFOs are in the newspapers as compared to today when the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel wouldn't just right. run a UFO story on the front That's cover true. like the... Uh, like the Hattiesburg American. Right. Well, did. I mean, that's true, but it, it's just unusual that, you know, they all seem to be converging on, you know, one window of time. And uh, it looks like, you know, the, the 23rd was that date, although there was a little spillover uh, afterward. And I want to share that as well. Now, okay, just, just imagine that you just heard about the worst disaster in aviation history in the United States. And then you're on a plane, which also happens to be a Northwest Airlines flight. Oh, dear. This is what happened on July 10th of 1950 to some reporters from uh, Quick and Look magazine. And I just found a, a short uh, reference to it. I could not find the whole article yet, but if I do, I'll let you know. All right, so here goes. <laughs> Flying saucer evidence, two quick and look reporters and passengers on a Northwest Airlines plane observed a flying saucer for almost an hour near Aberdeen, South Dakota. Ben uh, Kosovar, himself a pilot, and Bob Sandberg said the object was very high and reflected sunlight with a metallic gleam. It kept pace with the 220 miles per hour plane, then turned away and fell behind. In the current look, Bruce Bliven says the scientific probability runs very heavily against the existence of flying saucers. Oh, nothing to see here, people. Right. <laughs> Don't worry. We just told you something terrifying. But some expert says it's all hogwash. So just imagine what it would have been like for those for those reporters and the others on that plane. Oh, we're already on Northwest Airlines, the ill-fated airlines. And then here's here's a uh, UFO dogging us for an hour, and we can see it from the plane. Yeah, that's windows. something else. Yeah, so that was that extraordinary. That sounds terrifying. Yeah, and um, then I also found a um, FBI memo, and this one is uh, from July 1st, 1950, citing over, uh, in Chicago over Lake Michigan. Uh, the following is submitted for information of the Bureau for whatever action it may deem advisable. On July 1950, redacted of known reliability, right. advised that at 1 a.m. on July 1st, 1950, at uh, North Chicago, Illinois, uh, the east intersection of 22nd Street and Chicago, the North Shore, uh, and Milwaukee Railroad and Chicago's Northwestern Railroad tracks, the uh, let's see, the Watchman's Tower, which is approximately 15 feet in the air. So from the, a Watchman's Tower, 15 feet in the air, he observed one cigar-shaped object about five feet in appearance uh, from his viewpoint, traveling from northwest to uh, the northwestern to a southwestern direction. 
at an excessive rate of speed over Lake Michigan, uh, actually over the uh, Great Lakes Naval Training Center in Great Lakes, Illinois. And that's not Chicago. That's pretty far up. Yeah. Like, if you guys have been to Great Lakes, that's not like that's not in the city. Right. Where, you know, you'd probably see a lot of different buildings, a lot of different lights. Like Great Lakes is pretty far. I mean, it's close to the Wisconsin border. Yeah, so according to the informant, this object appeared almost directly overhead at an altitude which he estimated to be about 15,000 to 20,000 feet. And it remained in sight for about uh, 20 to 25 seconds until it disappeared over the horizon. This informant advised that the object did not appear like any falling star or meteor that he had ever seen and that it proceeded in a straight and level flight. The informant continued that the front two-thirds of the object was a constant glow about the coloring of a burning kerosene lamp and that the rear third was dark. He continued that the object left a bluish-white trail behind it, appearing to be about four inches in width and about three times the length of the object. The informant advised that there were no wings or other type of support visible to him and that the propulsion, control, and stability were unknown to him. He advised that the speed of this object was much faster to any conventional aircraft he had ever seen, although it did not travel as fast as a falling star. He added that there was no sound discernible, and then a bunch is redacted, and it says uh, his attention was drawn to this object while he was watching for an approaching train. It is to be noted that he advised there were no other witnesses who saw the aforementioned object, and the informant has furnished reliable information to the Chicago division. So that's interesting too, right? Not, you know, again, again, right around the time, right around the location. Now, I'm not saying that it's aliens, I'm really not. I, I'm just. <laughs> I, I, I'm just saying what happened here. Now uh, there are people. What was it? Yeah, there are people who, for example, uh, think that the Peshtigo fire, which occurred, uh, you know, not too far from where we are again oh, in yeah. Peshtigo, Wisconsin, uh, which re- occurred on the same day as the oh. Chicago fire in 1871, that that actually those two fires and uh, also some strange deaths which happened in Michigan as well on that day were not caused by the fire, but were actually caused, uh, or or actually I should say the fire itself was started by uh, a comet. They feel, uh, there are researchers who believe that um, it was a comet impact, but when the comet impacted, it spread. the comet hit Miss O'Leary's cow, and <laughs> no, and that's why <laughs> the cow said the lantern. <laughs> Let that go. Let that myth go. It was just a, a way to um, uh, to kick those cow. downtrodden Irish. <laughs> um, really, that's what it was. It's a complete fallacy. But well, we deserve it. <laughs> yes, you know the the irrepressible Irish. Uh, I do have that redheaded stepchild thing going. Um, but anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I got a ginger beard here. <laughs> That's right. People, uh, there are scientists who think that uh, perhaps what happened there with the Pashtigo fire and the strange deaths in um, Michigan and uh, the also the deaths in um, and, and the big fire in Chicago was that it was a comet 
you know, that hit, but it's stretched out. And so parts of it hit in different areas. And that, you know, some of the deaths that occurred were um, due to, you know, some electrical manifestations from the comet or, you know, some other agency of the comet. You know, some somebody told me that those people in Michigan died because um, the fire in Pashtigo sucked all the oxygen out of there, so they suffocated. Now, I'm not sure how plausible that is. I'm not sure how plausible any of this is, but it should... <laughs> yeah, it should, because there's a lot of fires and a lot of people can still breathe. Yeah, it just makes you think about what what exactly happened here. There's just more questions than there are answers. Makes you wonder. Yeah, just like there's more questions than there are answers for flight NW2501. But uh, what I'm hoping is that the wreckage is finally found. Once they find the wreckage, then they can discern what might have happened. They, They can tell from the wreckage uh, something about it, you know, even well, after all we'll these years. At least we'll have some more clues. Right. We'll have some clues. When we come to it, though, you know, was there ever anybody like that talked to a government witness or that talked to any, you know, that someone like a, a whistleblower or anything that came out and said like, oh, yeah, this was this was an alien. Well, maybe we I- should put a call out. Yeah, if you Call to all whistleblowers. If well, you have if you information about uh, NW2501 <laughs> and what really happened, let us know at othersidepodcast.com. Uh, we we are, will preserve your identity. Yes, yeah. we we will keep you anonymous, of course. But, you know, who knows? Maybe some of this information is passed down among family members uh, about the terrible thing that happened, but uh, I'm just hoping that uh, Valerie Van Heest is able to finally find that wreckage after more than a decade of searching. Just imagine yes. what that'll mean to her. We're and, rooting for her, and to you know all the the people, the the survivors uh, of of those that 58 that lost their lives. You know, to just be able to put some closure on it. Well, has Clive Cussler mentioned anything about aliens? Has, has the people who are working on obviously they don't want to be like, oh, yeah, we think it's no. going to be aliens. No, they, they, they have not mentioned anything about aliens, nor would they. I mean, funding is very I would important be like to, their, to their work. I, I don't think they would mention that. And, you know, I don't think anyone knows until we find that wreckage and, you know, have some more clues. We just don't know. But it's one of those missing planes. You know, people think uh, that 370 is so rare. And they don't know that we have this missing plane uh, over Lake Michigan. And, you know, it's been uh, that situation for, you know, their lifetimes for, you know, almost the last 70 years. Well, I think it's aliens, no matter, I mean, no matter what. So I'm going to call <laughs> Clive, I'm going to call Matthew McConaughey, the new member of the team. <laughs> and be like, Matthew, you got to find the alien oh, yes. missile that caused this horrible story, this sad plane to crash. Yeah. And all those people to die. Right. Or, um. Tell us, you know, maybe it was some kind of uh, astronomical phenomena, like a comet again, and uh, that could have been something where where definitely it, it's it lasted longer than a lightning strike, but you know that that just uh, unbelievable odds, uh, but it could happen that you know you get hit by a piece of a comet or some other space debris, and you're just that unlucky. I mean, these well, things could happen. Well, if it goes through like, the rudder of the plane or something, yeah. or if it goes through a propeller. I mean, this is 1952. There were people actually flapping their arms to make that. They were like, I just, I just flew in from New York, and boy, are my arms tired. Yeah. Like, 
it really wasn't the same kind of jet. It wasn't jet technology at the time. It was propellers. Yeah. And I just wonder too, like if there are any aeronautics specialists listening to the show, I probably butchered a lot of things. So please do forgive me. I'm just trying to ask some questions about this. But, you know, if there's anyone that knows better, I'd like to hear from them. You know, what would cause wreckage to be shredded in this manner? Is it typical for um, a plane to be shredded like this? Or is it unusual, like we seem to be led to believe by all these articles and, and books that have, you know, covered this crash? Well, I think it's interesting that people back in the 1950s thought it was an alien. You know, they were like, oh, yeah, it's a UFO. So, I mean, we had a, we had a plane crash in our own backyard. Uh, where people had stories about it years later, much like CNN was actually, CNN was the MH370 channel for a couple of months. Because yeah. that seemed like the only thing they were covering. Like the only thing happening in the news is MH370. And that plane, like it, we don't hear about it. It's, it's gone. It's done. Yeah. And this is the same kind of thing. You know, 68 years later, the world has not changed that much. Um, except for this time, we have witnesses who see something blowing up in the sky and aliens UFOs <laughs> might not be aliens and UFOs all over the United States <laughs> that day. So, yeah. I mean, there really is something to it. And I hope Valerie and Matthew McConaughey yes. find something <laughs> in it. And Steve Zahn, even like, I hope he gets to have a couple of jokes in there too. Cause he's no, it'll, funny. it'll be exciting to see the investigation unfold and see what they find. Right. Because yeah. I hope they find something with some good clues that we can actually get some real information from. Well, like if yeah. the submersible goes down, and they find like a hole in the side of the plane and like it's some like and somebody like they find on the on one of the seats or whatever, somebody has written, it was UFOs. Like that's all we can hope for. You know, <laughs> right. is, instead of like what was written on Roanoke Island when everyone disappeared, like Croatoan. 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 It can say Croatoan on that ship. I'm fine with it. But I'm excited. <laughs> I'm, I am excited that people are, are taking it seriously. Yeah. And also yeah. just for respect to the fact that 50, you know, 58 right. people died. And it wasn't yeah. that long ago. It was recent enough that people still have family members that are just wondering, you know, what, what? actually happened to this person. It was in our parents' lifetime. Right. So yeah. thank you so much, Allison, for all the research you did on this. It was yes. really amazing to learn something that I feel like I should have been aware of yeah. decades ago. I don't yeah, know why this is brand new to me, but... But uh, it was great, great work you did. I live right by a, um, I live right by a marker that talks about a, a guy that was flying as a military pilot on Lake Monona in Madison, and he had to crash his plane so it wouldn't crash in the city. They put up this little marker for this guy, and this is in the 1950s too, that the plane was going down over Lake Monona. It was going to crash into the city of Madison near the Capitol and stuff, and he put it down in the water instead. Did he see something suspicious before he went down? I don't believe, I, don't, oh, I think okay. he just was like, the plane's going down <laughs> and he's like, it's going to crash into the city. He's yeah. like, I'm going to put it down in the water. But I mean, the thing is, it really uh, was a different, those people who were aviators, those people who got in planes that got off and flew all over the world, that was more dangerous than we We're realized. Because yeah. today right. you don't even think about it. People that are scared of flying, we make fun of them. Oh, you're scared of flying, you little wimp. That's what I say when I'm at the airport. I don't know about you, but no, we make fun of people who are we make fun of people who are scared of flying because it is much more likely that you'll be hit by lightning than it is you'll die in an airplane. Yeah, we have statistics on our side now because right. safety is so much better with those. Right. And in the past seventy years, so back then these people were very brave. 
and they probably didn't even get peanuts on their flight. Oh, <laughs> all right. Yeah, and you, you know what they're thinking, though? It, it, it's more likely that I'm going to get hit by lightning. What about the likelihood that I'm going to get hit by lightning while I'm in a plane? Right. <laughs> or yeah, or a piece go. of meteor. <laughs> or, right, or a piece of meteor. Or you crash into a UFO because the air traffic controller's being a jerk. <laughs> no, no. Sorry, buddy. I mean, you that is unusual lower. that he did want to... Uh, get so much lower i mean what was he trying to avoid right exactly he yeah. saw something i mean it sounds like he, he really he was trying to do the limbo over like michigan he saw something that made him concerned enough that he disobeyed the orders yeah. you know, right so. and and the thing is if it was due to the storm that he wanted to get lower i mean why would they deny him right and it, it makes me laugh because his name was robert lind i think like his brother's paul lind so I just keep thinking, I keep imagining Paul Lynn find the plane and say, we're going to go lower. Like, I just have that in my head. Anyway, I, Paul I don't Lynn, think there's that's a, any relation. Okay, I think Paul Lynn, that's a that's an old school reference for you guys. Yeah, I didn't even get that. That's okay. Uh, anyway, Allison, thank you for doing the research on this one. You're welcome. Let's hope that Matthew McConaughey finds out what happened to yes. the plane and gets the wreckage this summer. And we're looking forward to the road trip with you this weekend to Alton. Yay! You're going to climb aboard the Sunspot van? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to leave early in the morning and meet awesome. up with you guys. It's going to be fun. Yes. And so this week's song, well, since this is a podcast about one of Lake Michigan's <laughs> greatest mysteries, oh boy. we decided to put in a song about one of Sunspot's greatest yeah. mysteries. Yeah. Unsolved in the, still. In the early 2000s, we played with a band called Racket Box, and they were from Killeen, Texas. They were all guys out of Fort Hood, and we played a few shows with them, and I had a lot of fun, and we kept hanging out with a guitar player who would never tell us his real name. He just went by... Mr. Foth. And so we hung out with him, and we partied with him in his van. He wasn't old enough to drink, so he, he like, would be like, hey, you guys want to come into my van and drink Jack Daniels? And we're like... Yeah, yeah, we do, because nobody had any money at the time. We're like, yeah, well, come hang out in your van. And we all separately hung out with him in his van. It wasn't scary. It was wonderful. <laughs> and you Not know, creepy. He, he's in the service, and so he played some shows, and then he went off uh, to the Iraq War. And that's it. Well, we don't know, actually. We don't know what happened to Mr. Faf. And that's the whole point of this song. This we is- never saw him again after that, uh, what was it, the year 2000? <laughs> the year 2000. So again, no, if you was... have any information about Mr. Foff. Oh my gosh. What if we found him? <laughs> that would be great. If you have any information about Mr. Foff and the band Racket Box, the last time we saw him was December 31st, uh, 2003. Okay. Not that far off. So this is one of our greatest mysteries. And whatever happened to you, Mr. Mr. Foff. Another night, 12 other Swedish bands Nothing to do, they're just sitting on our hands Then somebody new came into town Well, he got us drunk, yeah, he turned the feet around And I'd like to know what happened to you, Mr. Bob 
to you, Mr. Fox? Did you leave the band? Do you still drink in the van? And I'm happy to say, from next to the day, Mr. Fox, will we ever meet again? I'd like to know what happened to your for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, Wendy, you know it's not a mystery. Not a mystery? But everything's weird in our world, Mike. That's true, but what's not weird is our Patreon community. Oh, well, they're kind of weird. Well, but in the way we we love. It's no mystery to us that they're the greatest people in the world. <laughs> they're the people fact. that help See You on the Other Side podcast and Sunspot work on new songs and create new podcasts every single week. So we want to thank our Patreon community very much for being part of it. Now, Dr. Ned is at a level where he gets a shout out every single week. Dr. Ned, thank you for being an awesome Patreon. Thanks, Ned. And to the rest of you, you guys are awesome. We can't wait to see you at the next Hangout. Yes. If any of you out there in Radioland want to be part of the next Join the party. If any of you out there in podcast land want to be part of the next See on the Other Side, hang out, talk to each other, let's suggest episode ideas, help out with songs. Yeah. There's a place in the internet where you can make that happen. And Wendy, where is that place? That is at othersidepodcast.com slash donate. And we'll see you out there. Thanks for listening. You're scared of flying, you little wimp.